0: Are you a scholar, journalist or writer focused on Palestine? Contribute to the foremost journal on the past, present and future of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Quarterly is soliciting articles for peer review, essays and letters from Jerusalem. Send your work to jq at palestine-studies.org or see palestine-studies.org forward slash journals.
1: Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that for a, an almost live event, in fact, we're recording together, my guest is Mahmoud Muna. Mahmoud was born in Jerusalem, went to school in the refugee camp of Shufat, and you can safely say that he is the bookseller of Jerusalem. In fact, if you walk around Jerusalem, that is the place where you're going to go and buy your books particularly in English language. But Mahmoud is also an activist, and uh, I can safely say that he's a key figure in East Jerusalem today. Now, Mahmoud and the educational bookshop in Jerusalem are, as I said, an institution. The bookstore was opened by his father in the 1980s. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, Mahmoud, growing up in Jerusalem, the bookstore and current Jerusalem.
2: But first of all, Mahmoud, welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto. It's very nice to be here on your show.
1: Mahmoud, my first question is a simple one, but it might be a complex one to
2: elaborate. What is your Jerusalem? In other words, what what is your connection with the city? Well, it might be cliche, but it's really true. This is a city that I love the most and the city that I hate the most. It's a city that I did not choose to be in, uh, but yet I ended up being in. It's the city that I was born in. It's it's home. It's the city that I know the most. Uh, it's the city that challenged me the most. It's the city that I try to change the most. It's a city. It's a city that I am addicted to in the most way as well. Uh, I have had a chance to live somewhere else in the board abroad during my university studies, yet I actually chosen to come back. Um, whether that's a kind of, a, I knew that I'm making that choice, or was that the automatic choice? I don't know. And I think that's the part of the complication of of my relationship with the city. But really is, Jerusalem is a city full of contradictions, uh, and therefore in any attempt to try to define our relationship with the city gonna fail, because it has to be a relationship that defined along Mm. that uh, kind of contradictions, uh, and we just have to accept that.
1: Many guests from Jerusalem talked about uh, their experience of growing in Jerusalem, depending where they were born, in the old city, or outside the old city, whether they were born before 1967 or after 1967. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, growing up in Jerusalem?
2: Yes, I grew up in, I mean, I was born in the 80s, early 80s. I I grew up in Jerusalem, particularly in Musrara, in the east side of the Musrara, on the Palestinian side of the city, um, before the road and the tram was being built. So actually on exactly on the seam, uh, so to speak, on the no man's land. And I, uh, my re- recollection from the past is crossing to the other side of Jerusalem and buy the ice cream from the Jewish shop, because that's because of like the different ice cream, the European ice cream at that time in the 80s. Uh, it was kind of just before the Intifada, around the first year of the Intifada when I started to grow up. And uh, then, of course, schooling in Jerusalem. I attended a local school uh, in the city center of Jerusalem in the beginning uh, years of the first Intifada. At that time, my dad was teaching in Shafat refugee camp in the honor west school, and he was teaching the very early hours of the morning uh, at a boys' school, because then the school will become a girls' school later on. But I would go with him to the refugee camp. And again, that's that's the weirdness of this, that you, I'm not a refugee. I'm actually from um, the city center of Jerusalem, yet I will make every day this trip into the, into, the, into the camp. And, you know, people trying to leave the camp, I go there to school. I mean, there's another contradiction of my life. Uh, and I spent all my um, schooling years in that school. All my friends, um, th- the daily life of the camp, I kind of adapted to it. Yet I had the privilege of leaving uh, the camp in the afternoon um, and come back to my kind of safety net in in, in Musrara. Um, but I actually connected to the story of the refugees, and I think that kind of formed also part of my understanding of Israel-Palestine, the Palestinian story, uh, and my purpose in life as well. Um, I, I know most about the Palestinian story from knowing the most of the Palestinian refugees and the story of the Palestinian refugees. Um, and of course, this the the camp continued to stay with us now, and we know it's we know how that developed in the in the recent days. Even um, yet, the Palestinian problem is getting from worse to worse. And and I got my education in the camp. Outside the camp, I kind of took advantage of all these privilege that a human being does in life, Uh, yet I hope that at one day my work will contribute to the ending of the misery of the refugee camp in the most simple way I can. So let's move
1: to talk about your work. Now, we're sitting here in the the bookstore of the American Colony Hotel, even though the main store is not far away from here, is the educational bookshop. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the bookstore was basically established by your father
2: in the 1980s. Why and how did your father open the bookstore? Well, he w- he was doing this morning shifts, and at uh, exactly half twelve every day, uh, the school will change. We we'll have new headmaster, new teachers, new students, and it will become the girls' school. And he had all this time to do in his afternoon. He will come back home, uh, and he was an avid reader, and he wanted to do something useful. And. Probably my mom also pushed him out of the house and asked him to do something useful. And when you are being told to do something useful, you know what you do you start the bookstore. Uh, and it must have been also. Um, A continuation of his mission. He was educating in the morning and he wanted to continue his mission of education Hence the name also the educational bookshop So he started the bookshop uh, and it was a kind of an afternoon activity where he can read books, sell books But also office supplies because maktabe in Arabic has everything to do with writing the books But also the stationery and the office supplies. So he was doing that in the afternoon and gradually, my brothers finished their studies, and uh, my parents had a big family, six boys and, and one uh, sister or one daughter. So they, every one of us, I'm the youngest, so everyone eventually kind of graduated and came to help my dad in the bookshop, and then the bookshop became kind of the, the, the family bookshop. Uh, but yeah, for him, it was just making good use of his time in an afternoon. Uh, before social media, I guess, and before internet, and before we learned how to waste our time, at that time, was trying to make good of user time and he started a bookshop. How
1: hard was it uh, for your father to actually open the bookstore? I mean, I, I'm curious about the challenges because obviously the bookshop is mostly uh, selling books in, in English and is also located in East Jerusalem, in a central street of East Jerusalem, which is Saladin Road, um, and often the very center of. Uh, I don't even know how to call it. Scuffles between uh, Israeli authorities and local Palestinians, and, and so just to open an educational center there, how hard has been basically?
2: Right. I mean, the location is uh, cannot be ideal or cannot be worse. It's between Harus Gate and Damascus Gates. It's a few meters away from the Orient House in the old days, in the 70, in the 80s, which has played an important role. And it's also a few meters away from the National Hotel, which is at that time used also to be the hub for internationals and, and Palestinian nationalists and so on. So the street was always, and it's the main street, so also if you want to put a public display of, 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 uh, of Palestinian nationalism, if you want to do strikes, if you want to do marches, if you want to do uh, kind of... A, talk kind of um, uh, rallies or anything, it has to be in Salah ad So the, the, the bookshop has kind of witnessed all of this. In the early days of of the bookshop, it wasn't actually, so to speak, expensive to open the bookstore. I mean, when I talked to my dad, he was like, yeah, it's okay. I was just opening in the afternoon and just selling a few things. And it was okay. It was cheap to run the business, if you see what I mean. It's only in the 90s when, when of course... Um, things became more expensive, rent becomes more expensive, and and running a shop in, a, in the business terms became more expensive. And I think that's when my elder uh, brother Imad kind of took over and he started to deal with this as a serious business to so kind of make sure that the books tally in the end of the month. Um, but at that time, it was also when shops were closing every Monday and every uh, Thursday for a strike. The first intifada, that was all every Monday and Thursday is a strike. And during the week, only opening until one o'clock in the noon. Uh, so it was actually a very difficult time to maneuver and very difficult time to handle a business, um, and it's needed flexibility. It's needed energy. You only have few hours of during the day to actually do business and to do your supply chains and to bring and and and, and deliver goods and so on. But you know that's that's Jerusalem. It's uh, God's zip code zero zero. You know it's uh, there must be some divine intervention that helps also people who are trying to do good things and 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 uh, push them along the way.
1: I'm curious, how did the bookstore be, become a hub, particularly for internationals? I mean, my recollections of the bookstore goes back to the early 2000s. In the past 20 years, basically, I've always seen uh, sometimes familiar faces of people coming and going, uh, but very much you know, foreigners, and not necessarily that they're staying in the area of East Jerusalem, so they're obviously coming because they have a purpose to visit the store. So I was wondering, how did it then, you know, become such a hub?
2: Right. I mean, the the very few years, until maybe until early 90s, the bookstore was mostly Arabic books and... um, office supplies and writing materials it's um, from the early 90s late 80s when we started to see many journalists coming back uh, and humanitarian workers and and dignitaries or international figures to come and uh, kind of wanna engage in the Palestine Israel story if you like they were started to see the need for literature on Palestine written by Palestinians or from the perspective of the Palestinian point of view. So only then that we started to kind of collect, actually, reports from the uh, organizations that existed at that time, and there was not many of them. They were producing reports, statistics. I, I you know, I recall GMCC, of course, PASIA, and so on, and others. And, and that's kind of how we made it. And then eventually the big, big uh, jump for us or kind of... Um, turning point was um, Edward Said's book on uh, 1994 on Oslo. That's the book that was kind of, everyone wanted to read it. Um, There was an euphoria of peace, yet Edward Said is spoiling the party and saying this is not a good agreement. So everyone wanted to read the book in Arabic and in English, was translated into Arabic. And that's when we started to actually import uh, books in in English. And then we imported the rest of Edward Said's books. And then, the, of course, the new wave of new uh, revisionist Israeli historians, and then more Palestinian fictions. And then, the, I think this is the time, early 90s, mid-90s, when Palestinian narrative was legitimate enough for international publishers to start to publish books that's kind of take a different line than the official Israeli narrative or the, or, or the standard uh, conversation on Israel-Palestine. And the, at that time, the Israeli bookstores were just simply not interested in these books. So was there was even a gap in the market, speaking from kind of business terms, there's a gap in the market that these books are written about Palestine, written about the Palestinians, but they're not available in Palestine. And when we started to communicate with the publishers around the world, uh, they were so hungry to actually, or so eager to help someone locally to help promoting these books, because the Israeli bookstores were taking a very uh, kind of orthodox decision that they're not gonna bring these books. And they also help and facilitate our kind of uh, enterprise, if you like, in that, in that sense. Until 2009, when we decided that the market, uh, in terms of products, but in terms of clients, is ripe enough to have an individual bookstore, 2009, particularly mm-hmm. when the educational bookshop second branch were opened, that we can have enough books and enough clients to actually sell uh, books in Palestine. Um, We kept a very good relationship, and I think this is key, and this is an advice for any local bookstore anywhere in the world, to keep a really strong relationship between the readers and the writers, and to situate yourself nicely in between, and not to take any other role. You are just facilitating the transition of words between the people who write them and to the people who read them, and to make the connection and to facilitate the spaces where the conversation could happen between these two communities, if you like. And if you do this right, um, you can really be a good independent bookstore and serve a purpose for your city.
1: We are in an age and time where unfortunately the word censorship is becoming once again uh, uh, relevant, particularly in America, where you know some areas there are people that they, they feel like they, they want to censor books in libraries, particularly for you know school libraries. But also around, there is a sense of uh, you know, sense of books that might be problematic, and so I was wondering if you ever experienced some sort of a criticism by not just Israeli but also by others because of the choice of selling those books and uh, making alternative narratives available to a wider public.
2: Right. I mean, we we try to always remind ourselves that we are not the UN bookshop. We are not the uh, peace. Making bookshop. We are the Palestinian bookshop. We are a Palestinian-run bookshop in occupied East Jerusalem. We give a priority to the books that speaks about Palestine. We give priority to Palestinian writers, and we actually have duties to celebrate and promote the Palestinian writings. Uh, the world is not um, a kind of a neutral place, and Palestinian writers do not have the same opportunities as other writers in the world. Certainly not the same. Um, the same opportunities and chances that Israelis writers have. So actually we need to give more promotion and more help to the Palestinian writers and to Palestinian literature generally to give them the push that they need. And I think that's defined our purpose actually. So we focus on the Palestinian books. We don't have to shy away from this. We don't have to be apologetic about this. This is what we are and this is what we have and we will continue to do. Therefore, the bookshop, it doesn't take you much. And when you walk into the bookstore to see that there's books here is mostly about Palestine and mostly about the Palestinian story. Um, there's another 600, 700 bookstores in Israel that sells books about the Israeli story. <laughs> so we, you know, one bookstore in East Jerusalem can can afford to just sell books about on the Palestinian point of view. But we also can and we do have books that's also interesting that maybe does not collude exactly with my opinion 100. percent And I, I think we have a space for these books. Uh, some of the Israeli literature, some books that's kind of make a huge noise. Uh, um, that's come out, and that's probably, you could put it on the camp. I don't really like this binary, but you could put it on the camp of the books on Israel. But I think it's interesting, it's intriguing, it's provocative, and I think there is a space for it in in the bookshop. But the main focus, the main items that we have is books on, on Palestine. Now, this is an invented bookshop actually, we are six brothers and one sister and we have dinner every every couple of nights together and this is how we make our decisions, you know? I make it, I like the book, I'll bring it. I don't like the book, I don't bring it. It's my bookshop, it's my choice in the end of the day. It's a bit like uh, my own curating bookshop. So there is no kind of um, pre-written rules about which books I should have and I should not have. It's And I hope we're making, you know, good choice and, and a good decision all the time. I do get lots of criticism, of course, that the the the... the the bookshop is kind of leaning towards the Palestinian narrative, and that's someone's criticism. For me, it's okay. Thank you, but that's actually the intention. Uh, I I do get some criticism sometimes from the kind of the Palestinians that oh you know why are you are bringing I don't know why is Amos Oz or David Grossman's books are there. I like you know this is part of Israeli literature that we can't uh, really ignore. We have to know about it as well, and we have space for it. I mean I'm I'm not gonna have a, a whole display for Amos Oz in the bookshop. I will have that for. Uh, for Rajesh Hade or for Elias Khouri mm-hmm. or for Susanna Bulawa or I don't know for a Palestinian writer, but there's no harm in having also Israeli literature on on the shelf. So it's it's not really an official uh, policy, but it is more of uh, our DNA and uh, what our heart is leaning to which way at what time. Uh, and that's how we're making a selection of books. It's books that I will not, not have in the bookshop. I mean, you know, for example, we mentioned Erwa Said, uh, Mahmoud Darwish, you know, these, gassan Kanafani, you know, these important books that really are defining the core identity of palestinian literature or palestinian non-fiction work is important for the bookstore even if the book is i don't know 70 years old it's still you know george antonius for example (laughs) you know it has to it has to be in the bookshop Uh, it sells it doesn't sell we sell one copy every six years i don't care this is is a reference bookshop as well that it has to have the main important work on palestine and i think that's also make the bookshop seen as a place that you have to go also to educate yourself about what has been written on palestine not just the trendy books or the airport books that's kind of being sold every day on, on, on Palestine or other subjects as well.
1: I'm curious about something because obviously you mentioned books and the question of Palestine is at the center. Now, the book opened in the 80s and you talked about the the, the first Intifada. So obviously the, the book the book story is deeply connected with the history of Palestine in the past four decades. And I was wondering, you know, how did the store sort of manage to survive deal with maybe come back or even thrive you know given the hardship of the last 4 decades when we look at palestinian history particularly in east jerusalem
2: right i think it's uh, that's where it, the element of the bookstore being a family run business it's uh, it's advantage Right. I mean, when the when the bookstores makes money, we take salaries. When the bookshop doesn't make money, we try not to take salaries because we don't want to damage the bookstores' existence. Uh, and as a, as a family, we can afford to do that. Once it becomes a big business and there's employees, then of course, you, you know, you are in a whole different game. Um, the the. You know, we had <laughs> we survived two intifadas, one pandemic, and one peace process. Uh, that's kind of the history of uh, the history of the peace pro- of of the bookstore, and it's thrived. It's thrived precisely because we kind of quickly reacting to the situation all the time, and making sure that the, the 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 bookshop consume the best of our times and the best of our efforts, and nothing really compromised the bookshop existence. So, for example, during the pandemic. You know, I mean, that's a different um, unexperienced before situation and then it's uh, create new challenges. So one of the branches or two of the branches were actually completely closed during the pandemic and we have to stay with one. It has a cafe. It's, it, you can't really sell coffee in a uh, during COVID. So, you know, you start to upspeed your deliveries, you built on the relationship that you have with customers. So you deliver books to their houses. You start to recommend using even text messages, new books. Um, You do activities that's maybe, I mean, we actually in the bookstore sold educational materials. We sold uh, uh, kids educational games even during COVID because, and we did this in deliveries based on the network of relationship that we have uh, with the individuals. I think that's generally generally in um, in areas of uh, conflict but particularly in jerusalem um, it's if you just want to make sense of survivals only on the practical terms without acknowledging the energy and the love and the relationship which is kind of the unphysical element of the relationship between people and businesses or between people and people then it doesn't make sense i can't really explain how do we survived but when I look at it, I think really it's the help we got from the individual people who really wanted us to survive as well, who were calling us and say, look, pick five books for me and just bring them to me. Right. And then I can look at my inventory and find the five books that I have a lot from. Right. And so it's 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 a it's an honest decision. Someone wanted to really to help me. So I'm not going to go and buy the, life, the new five. I'm going to help release some of the stocks that I have and 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 the customers appreciate that as well and that was one for example one way of really helping the bookstore to just float during these times uh during and post conflicts first intifada second intifada and during the difficult times we have we see the same attitude people coming to their local bookstores and they know i don't have to say anything that we have been through difficult times and say i want to support the bookstore i'm gonna buy two books i'm traveling and i know i can probably get them somewhere else but i want to buy them here i want to support you we start to see also authors who wanted to give the bookstore the honor and the chance to launch their books from Jerusalem and to also uh, you know, give us the biggest sales, if you like. At the beginning, when the book comes out, just the most number of copies you could sell. So they want to do that through the bookshop, to help the bookshop as well. And I hope we can be giving back to the society, giving back by our existence, by giving back to our... Um, events and our space that we create for conversation on Jerusalem and beyond, and also by the goodwill we also support local organizations and so on, which probably not the space to speak about.
1: Let's talk about uh, Mahmoud the Jerusalemite, and I'm curious about uh, now moving to talk about the city. Um, a couple of years back, if I remember well, you wrote a very powerful letter about the movement and the events that were taking place around Damascus Gate, and you made a very clear point about uh, the youth. You know, these uh, young guys that were sitting by the stairs and, you know, the events that were unfolding, and how you saw uh, this youth. I want to pick it up from there and ask you about how do you see Jerusalem nowadays
2: and how you
1: feel about uh, the city?
2: Yes, I mean, it's... Uh I think the nice anecdote on on, on that um, um, article that was quite successful at that time, one, it was written with a good mix between the heart and, and the mind. But uh, the anic, interesting anecdote to that is actually I went to go and to see what's going on in Damascus Gate and um, as any good Palestinian as well to make their presence also counted. And then I, I quickly find out that I'm actually old. <laughs> uh, to the movement and I couldn't understand what's going on as the first time that it hit me actually where, where most of the time I get interviewed as the young voice of Jerusalem and now I'm there not the young voice of Jerusalem So, you know, you you come back depressed a little bit and like, oh, you know, what, what happened? Um, but then also you try to find another purpose for your life uh, and then maybe writing about it as well and writing in a form of to try to help You understand it as well it's uh it's jerusalem is like the rest of the palestine Palestinian cities it's a very young city and i think if we don't really understand the uh, currents and the dynamics that are happening among its young generations it is hard to understand uh, the city and again as i said before it's a very contradicting city so you look at the youngs and you see maybe maybe an increase uh, nationalism and sense of religiosity a little bit but you also see uh, an, another trend of increased liberalism as well and mm-hmm. progressiveness and if you can't really find uh, kind of a crazy way of coexisting these two terms which is in political theory we learned that they are separate then you cannot really understand the city and I think that's one of the challenge of uh, of really understanding um, the makeup and the politics and the underpinning dynamics of, of Jerusalem uh, For me Jerusalem is a city that still is a conflict with itself uh, and it's still a city that's it's the epicenter of the of the of the conflict uh, of the Israeli Palestine. The city is also changing, uh, speaking about um, uh, social economic development, speaking about building, about roads, and, you know, like any other city in the world, it's getting more people into it and bigger roads and, and, and more crowdness and now tram and whatever. Uh, but it still is a very ancient city as well. You know, you walk in, in, in Jerusalem, old city, and you touch these walls that has been there for thousands of years. In fact, I often, when I wanted to find my time of sanity on a, on a Friday afternoon, I go and try to walk in the old city of Jerusalem and to talk to the stones of Jerusalem and to imagine if the stones in Jerusalem can actually tell us something, what they will be telling us. I do that only on Friday afternoon, and I advise people to actually do it on Friday afternoon because this is a time when the city is very quiet. Uh, everyone have done his praying for the day, and they are around probably, tables eating and chatting and this is a time to start to see the architect of the city to start to see the stones to see the lights to see how the city is being built and so on um, and if you're interested in the last conversation uh, the, the the stones were um, the stones were laughing uh, because actually they were telling how many civilization they have seen coming through Jerusalem how many civilizations have started tried uh, to conquer the city and call it their own and how many of them survived None, in fact, and all passed along and ended, and just one more coming in now to try to claim the city is theirs. So, the city is is, is a very it's 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 in pain in the same time as well. Now, in in terms of Israeli Palestinian relationship, um, the city again reminding us of this tough relationship and the non-working relationship, it's reminding us of the occupation, the difficult side of the occupation. It also every now and then it also shows us or displays to us an element of um, element of resistance, whether we like it, our preferred method, our not preferred method. Nevertheless, it shows us that people are not happy uh, and people are trying to revolt or to change or to at least protest, uh, regardless if we agree with their terms or not. But that's also in the city. And in terms of Palestinians-Israeli relationship, I think the city is probably also giving us a hint of the future as well. Uh, What's going to happen in Jerusalem, it will eventually means what's going to happen in Palestine. Mm -hmm. If we decide that we wanted to share Jerusalem, then we ultimately saying we're going to share the country. And if we ultimately saying we're going to divide the city of Jerusalem, then that also means we're going to divide the country. And I think this is a, a, a good framework for people on how they see the future of the country. If they're ready to divide Jerusalem, then they should be Ready to defy the country if they think the city is undividable and this is one city and it has to be one city, then actually the one country as well. It has to be one country. There is Jerusalem is the center of the Palestinian national movement. Jerusalem is the center of the Israeli national movement. There is no Palestine without Jerusalem, and there is no Israel without Jerusalem in the same way. So it's a it's a it's the irony, if you like. Um, or the divine intervention again. That's also the big answer for the country has to be found also in Jerusalem, uh, and depends how we treat the city. We 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 love the city that much that we don't want to see hard division within it. Fair enough, but that has to apply to the whole country because you cannot have a Palestinian state without having part of Jerusalem at least. So it's a it's a it's a very contradicting city in that sense, but it's also a city that possibly could give us a hint of uh, solutions, a hint of answers for the future, a vision on how the future could be, if we were willing to listen.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host.
1: I want to ask you something about, uh, you know, the outside, uh, outside Jerusalem. What do you think people don't know, better say, don't
2: understand about Jerusalem, particularly outside Palestine and Israel? Uh, it's a that's a that's a lovely question because actually I think uh, we see what well, we see millions of people coming through the city every day and I I really do think that they see in other cities they don't really see my mm-hmm. city. Uh, there is an emphasis on the city about the stones of the city and the city as a fixed thing and people just come to see it and just to take still pictures with it and it's maybe fill an image that they have in their mind and they choose to relate to the city in the easiest way that could coexist with their already existing feelings. So if they're religious, they wanna go and see the uh, um, religious kind of aspect of the city and then they get happy because it answers their need and then they see the city as a holy city and that's it. If someone comes with the kind of just the history but not the religion, again, they see a very old city, and they look at the architect and they analyze it and they look at the stone colors and so on. And then, again, it's nicely give them answers to their um, imagination, of, if you like, or knowledge about how it's a historical old city. Uh, but no one gives interest about the people, which is really is very painful to me. Uh, most people come here, they don't want to talk to people. In fact, they kind of want to push people away from their way to see the city, to see their churches or to see their archways or to see their th- tiles or to see where the armenians lives or where the oldest uh, sect is or where the uh, sufis corner is and so on but they're not really interested in people and that's kind of the sad part of the city if you like and that's when i really think people are missing the whole point about the city um the jerusalemite and i don't mean here in any way a kind of a special breed of people but the people who really live in the city and treat the city as their own and they uh, accept the city with all its contradictions um, are all of this together they they are armenians and muslims and they are christians and they are religious and they are liberal and they are uh, um, uh, happy and they are sad and they're angry in the same time Um, and if you really don't connect and you don't relate to the people or you don't attempt to see the city through the eyes of the people then you're actually seeing just one layer of the city and you're not really seeing the city in all its complex. Uh, I understand, of course, people coming here for a week and they just wanted to tick the boxes and see <laughs> holy sites and take certain pictures for their Instagram account. Um, but i really hoping that at one point we can develop a concept in, in Jerusalem that the tourism is also include some sort of interaction with the people, with the people who live in the city. Then whoever the visitor is can come... And get a taste of the true Jerusalem, or this multi-layer uh, soup of of different aspects of um, of the city um, of Jerusalem. It still is again the zip zip code for 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 zero zero for God. You know, all the messages comes here in the center. Here's where everything starts, and here where everything ends. But It is also a normal city where you know people try to do normal things, and you know these old city walls are yeah, they are ancient walls as well. But this is the walls when, you know, when I'm tired at night uh, or in the <laughs> afternoon, I just sit there and lay my back at it. Maybe I just have a nap or something. It's the normal city that we deal with. Uh, but I'm particularly saddened sometimes when people ignore tourist um, visitors, ignore the, the living stones, often we call them, or actually people who make the city what it is um, and not really stuck with the feelings that they get. With the actual physical stones of Jerusalem, sure,
1: so. you made me think that
2: uh, also tourists go around and obviously
1: they experience shwarma and falafel and, yep. uh, and a few other things. And it's probably the end of uh, their experience and direct contact. We may be some shopkeepers at most. Uh, many guests of the podcast mentioned, uh, you know, walking around Jerusalem. Uh, there are invisible borders. Whether it's the green line, which now is basically marked by the tram line whether it's the invisible borders of certain neighborhoods, Mea Sharim and others. And I was wondering if you have the same experience of walking around the city and crossing those borders, and how do you relate to these invisible lines?
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they are more than one line as well, and it's more than one side of the city. Uh, we like to often misunderstood the city as three cities, as you know, Arab city Israeli city and even the Israeli city get divided into an orthodox city and not and uh, I think there's more than that I think uh, first of all each one who live in the city has his own path I mean this is something also people don't really understand each one who live in some place and work in another place generally we do these two three roads between home and work or between mm-hmm. whatever it is schools or whatever and that's it we don't so so in a way we created our own um kind of um light line and then that's how we move on and we don't really interact with the rest of the city if you like. And you really feel that if you if you kind of break that pattern and if you go to certain areas, you start to see the same people, the same people, although it's a big city, but there's a certain people who will walk Khanizet or there's few people who will come from Lionsgate in the morning, and there's few people who will use Jaffa Gate and so on. Uh, you know, that's 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 the, the, the so the, the the borders are individuals are not community borders. And that's what I'm trying to emphasize. I don't really think, uh, or I disagree with the fact that, you know, there's the Arab uh, city and there's the Israeli city, and the Arabs don't go to the Israeli city, and the Israelis don't go to the Arab city as well. That's not true, actually. I think many Arabs, of course, many Palestinians, uh, work uh, for necessities, bureaucracy, bureaucracy, government institutions, whatever. People have to go to Western city all the time. In fact, when they go there, that's, they see they see more of West Jerusalem, if you like, than East Jerusalem because they don't know that city and they get lost and they tend to drive around or, or walk around and, and see more of that city. So I, I'm I'm I think the invisible borders are uh, individual borders that have been created because of patterns of life of individual uh, people rather than by political um, divisions. In fact, we also misunderstood something really important about modern Jerusalem. We think of this east-west division as a geographical term. Um, I don't know. I mean, most people see, uh, of course, a city in a four quarters, but they also see mm-hmm. east and west Jerusalem as, a I don't know, as a as a as some sort of medical tablets and has a, like a line in the middle and there is a right of it and there is a left of it. But, you know... East of East of Jerusalem is West Jerusalem. North of East Jerusalem is actually West Jerusalem. Basically, East Jerusalem is where Palestinians live. I'm, I'm not speaking about political uh, uh, definition. I'm not speaking about international law. I'm speaking about how the city is being um, um, res- residented or how being <laughs> being lived. Anywhere where the Palestinians are, that's East Jerusalem. But now there's Israeli settlements on the east of east of Jerusalem. And that's where the Israelis live. So actually east of east of Jerusalem is West Jerusalem. And north of East Jerusalem is also West Jerusalem.
1: Talking about borders, I have a question about a place that I always found fascinating and complex at the same time, uh, Mamilla, which is this area of interaction of Jerusalem, right? So you have uh, basically Israeli businesses, uh, lots of Palestinian workers, and more and more, you get to see Palestinian youth walking around, right? And and some find that uh, problematic in many ways. You know, some see that uh, as a security concern, right? People are a little bit afraid to see maybe young Arabs going around. Others may find it like uh, problematic from maybe the other perspective. Well, you shouldn't be there because you're betraying the national movement, or so forth. And yet, that really speaks about the fact that, as you said, we have personal borders, but then people move, right? And So I'm curious about uh, your experience of being in uh, in East Jerusalem. How often do you see non-Arabs, non-international, so mostly Israelis, coming in and experiencing East Jerusalem? And how do you feel? How do you think they actually feel about it? Is is there still like a sense of fear? Uh, You know, I I know it's your point of view, but uh, it's something that was like uh, I found
2: very interesting the fact that the
1: others are not making the effort to
2: come and see. Yeah, I mean, it also depends on the political climate a lot of the time. So of course, on Saturdays, it's mostly when you see uh, Israelis just coming to the city to fulfill their absolute Orientalist uh, hunger, to eat the falafel, to see a part of East Jerusalem, to see, to see the Arabs, uh, uh, maybe to buy a few things also from the old city. Um, and that's usually a Saturday scene, right? and it's of course that also dictated by the political climate if if at that time things are ease and the Israelis feel like they can come and they can speak Hebrew and you can also be delusional a little bit because you can go in the old city and see the Israelis and they're buying from Arab shopkeepers, Palestinians, and there's a nice conversation going on. And you can pretend that's oh, looks like it is working. Um, it, it's just like another delusional scene. If you go actually to West Jerusalem at eight o'clock in the morning, you see all Palestinians coming to West Jerusalem and they may be buying their coffee or they're going to their workplace. And there is this uh, simple delusional aspect as if everything is normal. Where actually beneath the service is there's nothing, uh, nothing, uh, nothing actually is normal and nothing's actually working. Now, it's also there's a few spots where the Israelis would like to go in East Jerusalem. That's again another part of the individual, if you like, borders that many Israelis have created. So the Orthodox Israelis, they go to pray in the old city and to access Al-Haram al-Sharif, perhaps, or to go to the Wailing Wall. And there are also certain patterns that they always take, either from Musrara, for example, some of them from Salah but most of them is from uh, the Damascus Gate, and some from um, the Southern Gates, um, Zion Gate and, and uh, Dunk Gate. Now, no one goes from Lions Gate, for example, mm-hmm. from the Israelis' point of view. Uh, from the Israeli uh, um, population, for example. Same same about places where they go in East Jerusalem. Of course, we are in the American colony. That's another place where Israelis were regularly would come to. But um, would they go to the kind of the most uh, trendy, nice cafe in, I don't know, in a Zahra Street, for example? Probably not. They probably don't know about it as well. Um, if you speak about, which I, I, I find it a very fascinating uh, subject to look at, if you speak about hummus, right? This is, you know, hummus is a nice uh, unifying (laughs) um, plate. If you speak about the best hummus, where is the best hummus? If you speak to the Palestinians, they have their one or two places about the best hummus. If you speak to an international, he will tell you about the best place for hummus. If you speak to an Israeli, he will tell you the best place of hummus. Actually, the irony is, most of the Palestinians will agree about only two places, That has nothing to do with what the tourists will tell you about the best hummus place, which is completely has nothing to do with what the Israelis tell you about the hummus place. If you come to study it a little bit more, you understand why. Palestinians will consider, you know, I don't know, Abu Ali or Abu Hassan in Salah Street is the best because it is in the new city. It's where the post office is, where the Panks is. It's in the main road to their work up north to Sheikh Jarrah. So it's conveniently, it's the most popular place that they will go to, and that's become their best hummus place. They kind of, they tested it that much that now they think it is the best hummus. If you speak about tourists, they all go into the old city, into Al-Wad Street, and that's where Abu Shukri is. Abu Shukri ended up being in the kind of tour books as being one of the hummus uh, good places. So most of the tourists don't know anything about Hamas except for Abu Shukri. If you speak to the Israelis, they will tell you it is, I forgot the name now, uh, another hummus place in next to the Jewish quarters, which is actually the one that they can access coming from the backside of the city. And for them, they're not going to come to Wad, some of them will, of course. They're not going to come to Salah ad So they go to that hummus place, which is next to their gate in the old city. So it actually shows you also that's you know it's so much divided that even the best hummus, we don't know what it is. I mean, all these places have great hummus for, for the record. But it really is about how each one have created his own path and convenience. And therefore, he adapted and started to promote that this is the best place for them because they just get used to it. And if you look at other things as well, the best cafe, the best coffee, uh, the best shopping place, if you look at all of the, the best, uh, I don't know, greenery or flower shop or whatever it is, it's it's the same. Each one sees his own thing and each one conveniently access that place because he gets used to the place and the road and the parking and the ambiance and so on. And then in the end, we have three great places for hummus. Which uh,
1: I tried... Most of them, not all of them. So, yeah, I guess it's hard to say which one is the best, right?
2: Right. It's, uh, they're, they're all great places.
1: I have a couple of, probably a few more questions, um, very much related to contemporary questions and issues, particularly here as we're sitting in Sheikh Jarrah, close to Silwan, uh, and also we saw the resurgence of the question of uh, uh, Shufat. And so I was wondering, you know, you. Your ideas, your thoughts, your feelings about uh, the past events of the past few years, but also the ongoing events in these neighborhoods. And and so I was wondering, you know, from your knowledge and experience of knowing so deeply all of the area, how you see the events. I'm not asking you to, you know, look at the crystal ball and see what the future may bring, but just to get a sense of. uh, the trajectories, you know, who are the players and how they are moving in the current situation?
2: Yeah, I don't think it takes a a political scientist to see where things are going, to be quite honest with you. I think it's increasingly the state of Israel is putting its authority and its power and its money and its resources in the entirety of the city. We can see a nice spike of these activities after Trump moved the embassy to, uh, the American embassy to Jerusalem. So there was some sort of a... um, Ethical or moral um, kind of a green line that was given to the Israelis by the Americans, and the Israelis are taking the chance, so they're taking the opportunity, of course, uh, also in in um, in, a, in a time when there is a weak international position on on Jerusalem in particular. So it's Israel is more and more and more expanding, if you like, in in, in East Jerusalem or what we, uh, when I kind of call East Jerusalem, and the Palestinians are. Trying to use whatever they can to stop that. I don't think we are stopping that, but I think we are maybe delaying it. We maybe making this Israeli progress slower. Um, where does that lead us? It lead us into a situation where I think is Israel gonna eventually. Um, Take over the city in 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 the kind of soft sense of the word i mean it has taken over the city in the military sense of the word for a long time ago but if we're speaking about um, education if we speak about infrastructure if you speak about even um, language public spaces and so on i think we're going to see more and more israel taking over the city but then what this is a city that 40 percent 45 percent of its population are palestinians not citizen of the state of Israel, mm-hmm. they kind of remained as residents, but not citizen. They have no political rights. Yes, they have civil rights, but they don't have political rights. And if Israel is claiming the whole city, then it's I don't know if it is forgetting or it's trying to ignore the fact that they have to have a solution for the people as well. Okay, I mean that's not my ideal. That's not my ideal situation. But Israel is practically taking over the city, and the people are going to come as and be part of part of the city. They're not just going to leave to the moon. Then you're going to have a problem, which is already obvious, of course, uh, for people who want to look at it. But it's going to get more and more obvious where in this united, undivided, eternal capital of the Jewish people, 50% of those people who live in that capital have no political rights. This is Jerusalem. This is not in in the desert or it's not in the mountain. and It's not in an island somewhere off the shores of Tel Aviv. This is the capital of this self-declared Jewish state. So if there is no democratic rights, that there's no political representation for 50%, 45% of the people who live in the capital of that city, then to what extent you can argue Israel being a democratic state as well. And also, how are you going to deal with that city without political representation for these people? You're going to keep them in slums. You're going to keep them on the different um, um, economic uh, status. You're going to keep them into kind of ghettos with checkpoints or small neighborhood roads that they can leave. You can do that for 1, 2, 5, 10, 20, 30 years, but you can't leave mm. it forever. And here where I think what we're going to see, and we started to see this already, is we started to see a process of penetration, and I really want to use the word penetration, not integration and not assimilation, a process of a penetration from East Jerusalemites into West Jerusalem. What does that mean in practical means? It means that there are more Palestinians who are learning Hebrew, there are more people who are studying in Israeli uh, academia or Israeli academic institutions, there are more Palestinians who are working in um, governmental but more so in the private sector in um, Israeli institutions, Uh, there are certainly more female Palestinians in the public domain in the Israeli side of the city. And all of these people, and again, go back to this analogy, if you're having your coffee in a cafe place in Jaffa Street and you see these waves of Palestinians going every day in the city, you might get delusional that things are working. But no, these are people who are trying to find a personal way of individually helping their own self, in the absence of a solution, everyone is trying to find the individual solution. And so of course, if you speak Hebrew, it's better than not to speak Hebrew if you're living under an occupation uh, that use the language against you. So if you are studying in the Hebrew university, you're gonna find a better job than if you're studying in 8 University, for example. Now, people are not learning Hebrew to read, you know, Epi Yeshua poetry or to enjoy Amosos in Hebrew. They're learning Hebrew so they can get themselves a better place into this uh, difficult dynamics. And they are there as a strong Palestinian nationalist. They, again, they have not accepted, so to speak, Israel presence over East Jerusalem. They're not there because they think the conflict is finished and they are integrated or they assimilated in Israel. In fact, there is no invitation even from West Jerusalem or from the Israelis to actually ask the Palestinians to integrate or to assimilate. So the Palestinians are getting inside West Jerusalem practically to change the system from within individually to get benefit but also ultimately collectively to change the system from within and that's why I call it penetration now this is not an orchestrated it's not a de- decision that has been taken up by the political institutions mm-hmm. or the political leaders in Jerusalem which do not exist by the way as well it's an individual decision but when you look at it collectively you try to f- to see that actually everyone is doing it in a way that it sounds like a collective decision and I think In 30, 40 years, the result of that is a situation where it's going to be very, 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 very difficult to divide the city anymore because it's not just now a physical uh, 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 kind of um, joining connection. It's actually the people are much more intertwined and it's going to be very hard to intertwine that or to untangle it a little bit. Um, And that's going to bring us to the reality that we have a one shared city. It might not be a nice shared city. People might not love each other, but they certainly are working with each other and they are trying to make their work uh, kind of as smooth as possible. We're still going to have a strong cultural identity that's very different and very at odds with each other. You're still going to have, I don't know, you're going to walk into a supermarket and you're going to find an Israeli worker and a Palestinian worker. The Palestinian is going to be a, a very strongly Palestinian and the Israeli is going to be a very strongly Israelis, but they're working in the same supermarket. And they're trying to, you know, let their work get unaffected by their cultural identity as much as possible. And I think that's kind of the new, uh, and I'm not trying to make that very romanticized. I'm not trying to say that this is a solution, but that's actually where we're getting. That's a good situation. A bad situation is left for the audience to decide. But I think that's that's where we're getting into this. People are sharing the same house. Maybe they don't get along too much, but nevertheless, they are sharing the house. And I think that's how I see Jerusalem in the coming years.
1: There are certain individuals that may change uh, the rules of the game, and you know we, we saw in the past few years the emergence of uh, people like uh, Benvir, this uh, ultra-right uh, Jewish nationalist uh, religious figure,s who's making arguments about not only calling for the death of the Arabs but also retaking the uh, Arama al Sharif, being the, the Temple. Do you think these are? marginal figures that may just emerge or they may actually play an effective role in avoiding what you were just
2: talking about like this idea of a long-term penetration i I think they might try to slow it but I think it's uh it's not a um, I think the best way to really put it it's not a strategy that the Palestinians have chosen from a set of five strategies and they said let's try this which if it doesn't work, we're going to do mm. plan B. There is no plan B. This is, this is what is people are doing. This is not a strategy out of, out of uh, convincing that this is the right way to do it. It's, it's the lack of all other options, right? It's actually similar to how the whole country is going again. It's, we're going to one-state reality anyway. We like it, mm-hmm. we don't like it, we want to call it a solution, we want to call it a, a situation, we want to call it an apartheid, it doesn't really matter what you call it, but we are going into a situation where we are all existing in this country with a 50-50% uh, population uh, kind of num- numbering, and that's and that's a situation. It's up to us to make it a, a solution or to keep it a situation. And I think in Jerusalem is pretty much the same thing. I mean, you know, Ben Gvir probably doesn't like to to, to hear that that sixty percent of the of the health sector workers in Israel are Palestinians, right? So you know, I mean, he can have the rhetoric that he likes about uh, transferring Palestinians, but in the end of the day, you know, the Israeli health system is going to collapse with the next pandemic. They're not going to have enough workers to uh, administer vaccines to, to 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 the Jewish people, if you like, in the Jewish state, if there is no Palestinian health workers. And we're just thinking about health workers. But if you talk about all other sectors, you're going to start to see the same. Maybe the first Palestinian uh, uh, um, Nakba survivors, they wanted just to live and to have a house. Mm-hmm. The next one, were maybe also they kept their head down. But the third and the fourth Palestinian uh, um, generation of the Nakba are actually an educated, uh, um, inspiring people, they wanted to succeed, they wanted to reach places. They are doing, quote-unquote, this penetration process because they're seeking a better individual positions that they are. So if you speak about academia, if you speak about mm-hmm. health, if you speak about private sector, if you speak about technology, if you're speaking about different sectors in Israel, the Palestinians are there, and they're in high places. And they are going nowhere. Ben Gvir likes it, he doesn't like it. He might make their life harder, but they're going nowhere for sure. And I think that's kind of, uh, uh, if you like, I am more convinced that this is the reality where we're going to find ourselves places. It's up to us to make this reality a good reality or to make it a hell. But that's not going to change the reality itself. It's going to continue to be a shared, um, quote-unquote, city.
1: I have one last question and uh, maybe an open one. Is there anything that... uh you know, we didn't touch upon our conversation, but you feel
2: passionate about it and you just want to talk about it? I think the... Um, <laughs> there's a few things I think that we, we misunderstand about Jerusalem and I would like to kind of also end maybe this uh, conversation with, with leaving people thinking about it. We like to see Jerusalem as a, as a kind of a, the center of civilization and the center of religion, which is absolutely is you know, um, I have a map here on my right or left that has the center of the world where Jerusalem is and America is outside the world. Uh, you know, that's how we have seen Jerusalem in the, in the, in the, in the old days. Um, we sometimes in, especially in times like today, we forget that actually Jerusalem is in the edge of the desert. So Jerusalem is not a very green place. It's not, uh, it's not a very um, fascinating uh, um, kind of a landscape. Jerusalem itself, maybe the whole country is, uh, the change of the weather now you know we feel Jerusalem is actually a desert weather for example. We don't have green space in Jerusalem as well. I think Jerusalem will be better with a river or a lake or even uh, I, I know, extended fjord of some sort to Jerusalem because I think part of the stress that the Jerusalem might have generally in their life, except of course for political reality, is also the fact that Jerusalem is uh, on the edge of a desert where uh, there is extreme weather, it gets really, really cold very quickly at night and can be pretty hot in some days. And there is no water. There is no the sound of water, and so maybe one of the plans uh, for the next colonials of Jerusalem <laughs> is to think about adding a kind of a sort of a river around the old city of Jerusalem. They well, they did from, it in Bershia. They built an artificial right. lake, right? So. so, so it is doable, and maybe we can kind of ease uh, people down a little bit because I think there's a magic that's uh, that's. Uh, that's um, um, water can bring to, to to people. Nevertheless, Jerusalem is a center where people aspire to go and to see and to visit and I think this is here where I wanted to also bring another soft aspect as a beautiful aspect about Jerusalem is the food, the diversity of food in Jerusalem. We know now there's a trend about you know uh, cooking books and and, and 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 restaurants and so on in Jerusalem but I think the fact that Jerusalem has seen so many civilizations and so many people, the cultural cuisine or the cuisine of the city is actually so diverse uh, in a way that actually can produce um, magic, literally. You can go to restaurants and have everything from Ottoman to Levantine to Egyptian to Bedouin to East European to Westerner kind of blend of fusion food. And I think that's aspect of the city that we can maybe add to what we see of Jerusalem beyond just um the stones and the old, hard aspect of the history of Jerusalem. Maybe something a bit more sexy, something a bit more uh, juicy, something definitely more delicious. And it's not just falafel and hummus. Something about the food of Jerusalem that's, in one way, tell the story of the city and the different people who have gone through the city and left something in it.
1: This was uh, Mahmoud Muna, the bookseller of Jerusalem. The Muna family owns and manage the educational bookshop in East Jerusalem. Mahmoud, thank you so much.
2: Most welcome.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.